So this evening I'd like to explore uh, a number of Dharma themes through working with one of my favorite poems. And the poem is called The Journey by Mary Oliver. Some of you may know that poem, and I'll read it in a moment. But it's also a theme which I think resonates very much with the, this time of the year, these days. It resonates with Passover, which is a journey from bondage to liberation. It resonates with Easter, I think, as well, which is a movement in a way from death to rebirth, however one looks at that. So what I'd like to do is to use this uh, wonderful poem. How many people know the journey? Okay, great. Use this poem to explore some themes of our practice, of our work in community, our work individually, and speak for about half an hour and then leave um, 15 minutes or so, maybe a little bit more, for talking together, for exploring the anything that came up, or really anything that's present for any of us with our practice, with our intention to bring our awareness, our compassion, our wisdom to our lives. So anything that's really up, I think, would be fine to go into in the, in the discussion. So first, the poem. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds And there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. I'll read it one more time and then we'll explore. The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company 
as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So, thank you, Mary Oliver. So maybe first a few words about the whole notion of the journey. It's, it's, it's like the, a little bit like the notion of a path that we somehow go out from where we are, we, we explore. And journey is an interesting metaphor because it's really we're going into something new. We often go places we haven't been as we do in practice, we, in a way, uh, move away from our habits. And our habits come running after us as we, as we take the journey. And we find ourselves in places that we um, haven't necessarily known before. And there's a way in which when we're on a journey, the, uh, almost like the outer situations can evoke inner change. You know, so there's a movement between the, the inner and the outer. And we, we in a way, um, if we're lucky, we encounter the unknown, which is really what we do if we're lucky in our practice. We encounter the unknown. That's why it's um, never so helpful just to try to reproduce the nice meditation experience we had the other week. I think most of us know that, don't we? A little bit. You know that uh, it's, it's interesting. We're constantly told, explore the unknown in meditation. And we say, let me get to where I was. Let me just reproduce that. And it's, some, it's a good impulse to, um, to notice and let go of and to really take that notion of exploring the unknown. And so at best, you know, maybe like the, the, the journey in Passover, we move from the bondage of, of habits into the unknown and, and find something that's fresh and that's renewing and that, that's ultimately liberating. And it's, it's hard because uh, the unknown is scary. So on a journey, we encounter fear. We encounter the... Um, way that the unknown, even if it's freeing, it can be scary. And I think we, we find, and we find in meditation and in, in the journey of our lives, we find that we often prefer the, what, the, um, our, the known suffering to the unknown. <coughs> you know, and we have to, we have to recognize that. We, we, we often prefer the familiar suffering and we say, let me, let me have my familiar suffering rather than the, uh, the new, because the new, I don't know how it'll be, and there may be some pain that I don't know about. And so, and so in, in a way, what we do when we practice is that we, get, we, we um, strengthen that ability to be with the unknown. And it's, again, it's, I know for myself, just a lot of years of practice, and to just sit and say, I don't know what I'm going to experience. Let me see what it is. Let, let me just be as present as I can. There's something in me, maybe, maybe something even just as resistant. No, let's have something good, pleasant, and edifying happen. And so, it's, again, it's something we have to work with. Maybe the poem helps remind us of the, the, 
the way that uh, anything that's going to be deep and transformative is going to have a strong element of the unknown, the mysterious, the, um, even the challenging. So this first part of the poem, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. So this is a big part of our practice, isn't it? Um, I sometimes like to think about meditation practice as um, continual listening to bad advice. You know, and some of it's from others that we've internalized and some of it's our own original bad advice. You know, and some of it's a mix. But in a way, what we do is we, we, we listen for the advice that maybe is telling us, play it safe, don't go there. You know, stay with the old, stay with the habits. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. And there's um, really, in, in the poem, the metaphor that's used is that we're, we're in this house where we, where the, um, the familiar bad advice happens, where the... Um, where, where there's a tugging at our ankles, where in a way, again, it's really about the conditioning, the old. It's the way, it's, it's, the Buddha used a similar metaphor. Some of you may remember that he, he talked about if we really could see our lives clearly, we would see that in a way we're in a burning house. You know, we're in a burning house and that's the house of suffering. And it's, it's um, something that is part of practice that we become more familiar with the nature of this house and with the fact that there's suffering even when maybe it doesn't even look like really blatant suffering. It's more the suffering of staying limited or staying small or submitting to fears. And we see that in our practice and we notice that. There was um, a number of years ago, actually not that many years ago, about six or seven years ago, there was a period when I had been uh, working a lot and felt like I think I was working too much and I was about to start a, a new project and it felt like I just needed to stop being so busy. And so I was able to um, arrange my life so that I could um, drop a lot of the structures. And so I was at that time I was on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and I stopped being on the board. I was the co-editor of a journal uh, called Revision, some of you may know, and I stopped doing that. And I was able to, I was um, teaching a lot at um, graduate school in San Francisco called Saber Graduate School, and I stopped, uh, I actually went on leave from that and reduced my work there uh, tremendously. And it was interesting that a lot of the uh, people in each of those places told me, if you leave, things will deteriorate. People at the journal, I'd been the lead editor for like seven years or something, and the managing editor told me, if you stop doing this, the journal will really suffer. It was like, mend my life, each voice cried. <laughs> you know. And it's interesting, when we go on these transformative journeys, there are a lot of those voices which say, stay like you are, I need you. You, know, you, have, to, you have to 
stay with your old habits. They don't say that. They don't say stay with your old habits. They say it's really important that you keep doing this. And there's part of this journey that involves a, um, a dropping of the old structures. And I had the privilege to be able to do that for about a year. And it was, it was a time that was really pivotal in my life, you know, where I could... Um, um, I, I, a lot of the time was on retreat. I traveled some. Some of the time I just didn't have any structure. And it was kind of scary sometimes, you know, like, what do I do today? Hmm, <laughs> not sure. You know, and it was, but it was, uh, it was, it was interesting. And as anyone knows who's retired, things, even when you're not, don't have anything to do, the days get pretty full sometimes, right? So anyway, but it was a very powerful time and voices were saying, mend my life, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Then the poem goes on. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. And in a way, uh, this is saying that at a certain point, we know what's important for ourselves. You know, whether it's to align ourselves more with our deeper values, with awakening, with growth, whatever metaphor you use, there's a point where we where we, where we say, this is my life, I need to do what's most important to us. And it's really hard because we're usually kind of already enmeshed in things. It would be really nice if, you know, I think we probably imagine like, okay, someone like the Dalai Lama, he had it, you know, he was young, he had great education and everything was just sort of lined up in me. I had to, you know, go through adolescence in America and, you know, all these different things that really kind of, you know, orthodonture, <laughs> all these, all these. Uh, this uh, personal. I, I, I went through orthodontia twice. It was really, it really made my teenage years hard. <laughs> Some of you can relate to that, I'm sure. Um, and but we, we kind of met. But you know, the okay, the Dalai Lama. He had it all. He has it all lined up. Got great education. Had you know, like these great teachers. But actually, he had a hard time too. You know, he said he came from this really. Um, part of Tibet that was known for irritable, angry people. This is, this is in, all, in, in all the movies and the, you know, the promo literature. Dalai Lama was actually in, in San Francisco today, wasn't he? That's right. Did you read the, was it today or yesterday? No. Yesterday, but he was talking with Muslim leaders. It was amazing. Dalai Lama was in San Francisco. So anyway, so, but he said I was, you know, I was, um, until I was in my 20s, I was still pretty irritable and angry even with all this training. So he has to do, you know, he has some bad habits and he has to work with too. And so we, at some point, we, we do what we need to do. And it's really this, this powerful moment, you know, and it's, it's a language actually that's also used in the, in the Buddhist text. You know, if you've read the suttas, you know that, you know, the line that's kind of a stock line, a standard line when people awaken is, it's said, and that, monk or that nun did what had to be done, did what he or she had to do. And uses, the translations use the same language. It's this, this um, coming to what's most important to us. And, and even in our lives, in this culture, it's even sometimes hard to know what's most important. So one of the beautiful things about sitting or retreats is we get a sense to really see what our deeper aspirations are. And 
and touch in with them. We really, we really, and, and have as much as we can those deeper intentions, deeper aspirations really guide us. And it's almost like a continual practice to come back and ask, how much is that happening right now? How much am I getting submerged by busyness, by whatever? You know, wonderful projects, even good Dharma projects. I remember one of my mentors has been Gil Fronsdale, and he has a great line that I like, which is he said, too much Dharma is not Dharma. It's a, it's, a, it's a great line. Too, much, too many good things stops being actually so good. And so in, in the Bay Area, that's a tricky one for many of us. Um, so Mary Oliver goes on. It was already late enough and a wild night. And the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. So... I like this line, it was already late enough, because it, 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 it relates to what I was saying earlier about how we might like to have had this perfect life, you know, with proper spiritual education from age three. But it, did that happen to anyone? Um, there, there's a way in which I, I like to interpret that line, it was already late enough, partly to mean that we almost, we start waking up midway through our lives. There's a way in which we, we don't wake, we wake up and things have already happened. We have wounds, we have things that we have to deal with. Uh, and I think that's, that's almost archetypal. There's, there's a, a beautiful passage in, um, from Dante, in Dante's, um, Dante's three books, which are really about the journey, really, in, in a way. And he, he, he uses the metaphor of the journey, and he says that this kind of turning point doesn't happen at the beginning of our lives, but it happens in the middle of our lives. This is, this is what he said, and he talks about how, in a way, in the middle of our lives, we wake up and there's a certain amount of pain there, a certain amount of, of um, just, oh my gosh, here I am. I have to, I want to uh, deepen, I want to be in touch with what's um, most important for me, but gosh, I'm... I got a job, I have a family, and, and so forth. What do I do? Help! Dante didn't quite express it like that. But here, here's what he said. he said. He said, In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. Oh, how hard a thing it is to tell of that wood, savage and harsh and dense, the thought of which renews my fear. So bitter is it that death is hardly more. I cannot rightly tell how I entered there. I was so full of sleep at the moment. I don't know how I got to where I am in my life, but I was, there was a lot of sleep. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I left the true way, but when I had reached the foot of a hill at the end of that valley, which had pierced my heart with fear, I looked up and saw its shoulders already clothed with the beams of the planet that leads us straight on every road. The time was the beginning of the morning. And so even though he comes to an awareness, oh, I need to go this direction, and it's the middle of his life, and it's dark, in a way there's a kind of a, a movement of the cycle. So it's now it's a morning, it's a new morning. And I, for me, this is a very powerful image of, um, you know, of 
of waking up or beginning to wake up midway through. And there's a way in which we can um, even judge ourselves for that. You know, one of the strange things that happens as we wake, as we wake up more is that we blame ourselves for having been asleep. Do you know that? There's a way in which we criticize ourselves for how we've been at the very moment that we're getting more awareness and, and coming into greater understanding. And it's, it's important to notice that because we can get a little stuck there. It's like the old habits are coming back there at that moment. And so we, in a way, we, we get in touch with what we might call our wounds, the difficult parts of our lives. And it's, I think it's part and parcel of this process of waking up, you know, sort of waking up halfway through or waking up more when, when a lot's already happened. We touch, we, we learn to touch our wounds. We learn to touch that which is even, which is we might call dark in ourselves or um, that which is difficult, we might say. But little by little, we leave, you leave their voices behind. The stars begin to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that, keep, that kept you company. And it, it goes on from there. But there's this way that um, as we practice, we, we do get in touch with this um, quality that seems to be more authentic in ourselves, that we, we see the voices giving bad advice, we see our conditioning, and something more authentic comes into being. I think it's a really important part of practice. We listen to all the voices, and something starts to be more authentic. We start to say, that's the voice, that's the voice of truth. You know, it's what the, uh, I think it's something like what the Quakers call the still small voice. It starts to get activated, and we start to know a voice of truth. And I I remember very, very distinctly my own sort of um, awakening to that kind of voice. There was a, I was on a retreat and I was doing walking meditation. This was, um, some of you have been to the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts and I don't know if we still do it that way, but at that time we used to walk in an old converted bowling alley. And um, anyway, I was I was kind of walking back and forth there, and I found myself um, starting to feel really afraid of two people around me. I said, why am I feeling afraid? And I just stopped walking. It was in the middle of a retreat, and I was fairly quiet, and I just asked myself, why am I afraid? And it was, um, it was just for myself. I wasn't really um, needing to talk about it to anyone, so I was, in a way... I started to hear some very clear answers there. You know, you, you know, you, this is why you're afraid. You know, I think if I remember right, I was, I was afraid of, of what I perceived as the person, people's power, you know, sort of personal power. And I said, hmm, this is a really good tool to be able to ask a question and get a really clear answer internally and get one that's really authentic. And I started to call it my no bullshit voice. 
and, and said, this is very, very good. And, and I just, um, uh, very helpful. And, and it's been around since then. And I think, I'm sure all of us have touched something like that, but it's something very powerful to touch, this, this voice. It's really the voice of authenticity, the voice that can really be direct and honest and sometimes very, um, I don't know, give us tough love. <laughs> give ourselves tough love, or whatever our metaphor is. And it's that voice which is so crucial to our practice that we, that we, I think we want to listen to and want to be able to activate. So as I got more familiar with that, I would just, I, I, I love to be able to just to, uh, you know, ask it a question, in a sense, ask myself a question whenever there was some confusion. You know, where I'm, I'm sitting here, this doesn't feel right in a group or in some, some situation, what's going on? And I would stop and ask, and there was some, there was some kind of voice that felt, that felt true. And so there's a sense in which it's, we could say that that's really just, in a way, being ourselves. You know, there's this beautiful line in a poem from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh that, that um, I think speaks to this. He says, why speak of the need to love another so why speak of the need to love one another? Just be yourself. You don't have to become anyone else. You know, why, basically say, why speak of love? Why speak of all this rhetoric? Just be yourself. That's all. End of story. Bye. <laughs> That's enough. And, and there's something very, uh, very powerful there. This, uh, you know, of course, it's being oneself once we've already seen all the bad advice. And we can easily confuse the, the, the self of the bad advice with the more authentic voice. But what's powerful here is Mary Oliver is saying that we, we have to move out of the house and almost go into the wilderness in order to have access to that voice. And the voice in this poem only appears when we've left the house, which again, we can use house in many ways, but I think house here is meaning the house of habits, the house of uh, familiarity, in a way the house that traps us. So she says, there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. And so I love this kind of um, paradoxical expression, right? There's, you know, you're leaving the house, you're going into the wilderness, but you're going into the world at the same time. You're going deeper into the world, which is more like you're going to the wilderness in order to in a way, join with others. We go into our own wilderness in order to connect, in order to be more, be more with others. And I'm, I'm really reminded of the, um, the Buddhist figure of the Bodhisattva, you know, the, the, the being who's uh, dedicated to both one's own awakening and the awakening of others. You know, that as we go deeper into ourself, paradoxically, we we uh, become of use for others, more, use, more of use for others. We can really make a contribution to the world. You know, this, this uh, I think many of us know the, the phrase in, in uh, Dogen, the Zen teacher, who says uh, uh, to, to, to do practice is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by 10,000 things. It's to go into the world and to, to be there more fully. As you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, 
determined to save the only life you could save. The way, again, the, I think the figure of the bodhisattva, the way that as we practice, we, we engage in transformation of self that lets us somehow be of use, but we have to have that really clear focus on our own self-transformation and on, on that sense of practice. Determined, determined to save the only life you could save, we go further into the world. And so, so the, the poem is about these paradoxes of how we go deeper into the self, find our own voice, and then go into the world, how we go into the wilderness in order to go into the world, how we go into ourselves to connect with others. And it's really a bringing together of those of those themes in, in understanding this journey. So I think what I'll do is I'll end just by reading the poem one more time, and perhaps you'll hear it with uh, different ears, so to speak, and, and maybe bring in some of how anything that we've explored is, resonates with you. The journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So, thank you. Thank you, Mary Oliver, and thank you. There's a website, but I could I could leave the poem if that's if that's helpful for people to have access to. So please, any questions or comments or spontaneous uh, short poems? Please. I guess I'll take this off by saying that I've been working on uh, this paradox this week myself with the uh, a project that I'm undertaking, which is risky and requiring <clears throat> a lot of my effort. And I found myself uh, getting caught recently in the uh, trying to control the outcome of mm. things mm. and finding myself caught in this maybe paradox of trying to put forth as much right effort as I can um, but letting go enough to what the outcome might be. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to, f- to define what success might be in a way that was too narrow. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw myself crimping down and, mm-hmm. and becoming grumpy and difficult mm-hmm. with my wife and my business mm-hmm. associates mm-hmm. and so forth. So 
this seems to be um, relevant to me, mm -hmm. but I'm still caught with this idea of where one guides oneself and where one lets go. Where mm. one, you know, let's say St. Francis Prayer, self forgets to find. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that this elucidates the question for me. It elucidates the question, doesn't give me an answer. The the um the Saint Francis. Well, I'm no. just thinking of the poem as the, well as the poem. Idea yeah. Of, of trying to find the answer by having some faith in the process yeah. and some faith in, in those around us, yet having responsibility for taking the right action to get to yeah. the result. Yeah. And your name is. My name is Bill. Bill, did everyone hear the question? Yeah, it's. It's a great question. It's kind of a little coincidental because that's been a deep interest of mine. Anyone who does anything with trying to change the world, you better work with that one a lot. You know, <laughs> for um, um, anyone who's activist or actually anyone who practices, anyone who does anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, but some more than others. So, and it's coincidental. It's actually, um, I had to tell the people at the um, Swedenborgian Church, the theme I wanted to talk about, and it's exactly that theme in two weeks at, at, that, at that church. So they only give me 20 minutes. So, but, but 20 minutes. Anyway, so, so uh, just put some thoughts there. It's, I think it's really, really important um, kind of to work with it. It is a paradox. It's, you know, um, one way that I've found myself expressing it is committed action, non-attachment to outcome. You could express it in different ways. In, in the um, Hindu tradition, Gandhi worked with that principle all the time, by the way. And in the Hindu tradition, it comes out of the Gita, where, where the teaching is that of action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. And so... I like, the, you framed it in a way that I think is, is close to the way I talked about committed action. So somehow we um, really, we plan well, we do what we can, and then we act and sort of release the uh, action to the world. So the, so the principle is kind of easy. Doing it is really hard because we are really attached to outcomes and we, and we want things to succeed and you know, and, and it makes us really question um, what success is, actually. You know, because, in a way, um, you know, I, I remember um, I did an interview with uh, Dr. Arya Ratni from Sri Lanka, who is the founder of the organization called Sarvodaya in Sri Lanka, which is probably the largest application of Buddhist practice to the social world. It's a network of 15,000 villages applying Buddhist practice to community development. And I asked, he'd been doing this for like, he's in his 70s, he's been doing this for 50 years. And I asked him questions about this. And he said to me, for, for me, there is no failure. If I fail in a conventional sense, I always learn something. I may learn something about being more skillful or having more equanimity when things don't go my way. But he says, for me, 
as long as I can keep learning, I never fail with anything. Again, it's, it's powerful words, hard to put into practice. And so my experience is along the way towards working with that. Basically, we see where we are attached to outcome. And so if we're interested in this, we have to become really uh, close students of how we're attached to outcome and be, able, be willing to be with it. And it's, um, it's a hard practice, but it's, it's quite powerful. Much better to do with a bunch of people doing the same one and comparing notes. It's hard by oneself just to do that practice. But it, you know, it's the same thing that we pretty much do in meditation. Now that's, I mean, we have meditation as a laboratory because we continually, we simply, you know, we, we could say, you know, we don't have to use all this kind of Dharma language. We could say it very simply as do your best and let the chips fall where they may. Same thing, right? But it's really hard. But we do it in our meditation. We simply continually, moment after moment, do our best. And if we get attached to the outcome of our meditation, we're going to suffer. And so in some sense, we have to release the action or release what's happening and be present and see what's there. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Please. Yeah. Mhm. Did everyone hear? Okay. And and it, it doesn't mean we not expecting doesn't mean we don't plan and do our best and have our best sense of what's skillful, what would help. But there's something about once the moment of action happens, uh, we we in a sense see that what actually is going to happen is has a mysterious dimension to it. So it's sort of playing with mystery, but also playing with uh, being as skillful and responsible as we can be. It doesn't fit together in a neat logical package, which some, some, some of us may like, some of us may not. <laughs> yeah, please. I think uh, one of the things that I'm missing, I just realized listening to the question and yeah. answer and other ideas, was that um, you said um, planning is part of the process. Well, yeah. you know, it's important to having an outcome, but not being attached to the outcome, but also being as present as possible with the planning. Right. And as it's going down, it's something I miss a lot of the time where I do, I really do put myself days ahead of where I actually am. Yeah, yeah. Instead of, and, and you were talking about being irritable with your wife. And I, yeah. I'm resonating with that just because I stopped, I stopped being in the moment the moment is actually irritating at that point when I'm too caught up in the future of what the outcome is. Yeah, yeah. That, th- there's so much to look at. Did, did everyone hear, your, your name is? Paul. Paul. Did everyone hear Paul's comment? It was, to, to be brief and correct me if, if you need to, is, is, you know, recognizing the importance of planning, but for many of us, um, we get planning is big. That, that was true in my family, you know, like we're a family of planners. My sister actually got a degree in planning. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> got a master's degree in, pl- in city planning. <laughs> so, so, so 
Um, but it's, it's something that meditation is really good for letting us know how much we plan, right? Because you sit there and what do we do? We just, you know, something's happening. Number one, number two, number three, fourth time, fifth time, and so forth. And so uh, the practice can really help us and, and let us know. When I was first meditating, I was actually, um, when I first learned meditation, I didn't know what country I wanted to live in. So I had a bit of planning to do. I was I was had been living in Germany and I was coming back to the United States. I didn't know where I wanted to be, and so I would um, I would just plan away. And I, I saw a lot of it, but it kept happening. And I soon could see that I could um, I was just planning all the time, and it was, I could release a lot of it. I actually became a better planner. So maybe uh, the last one, or do we have time for for two more? It's it's about a quarter of. One more. Okay, please. Sophie, yeah. Did everyone hear Sophie's question? Kind of. Kind of. It's saying that um, she's been practicing for about a year and a half and felt like she's, in a way, seen, if I could um, paraphrase a little bit, seen a lot of the patterns and in some ways let go of a lot of the old habits or patterns, and yet she finds herself opening and experiencing a lot of um, certain amount of fear which is sometimes even feels overwhelming. Is that, is that, is that fair? So it's, um, and it, do you experience that in just in daily life at, at times or, you know, just when you meditate or at both times? Yeah. yeah. So a, f- a few things, um, you know, um, few things. First thing is doing this practice, we, we do get to become really experts on basically all the human emotions, you know, and, and fear is one of those. So it's part of the curriculum. And um, we don't always get to choose when it's there, but just to know that it's very normal and that it, you probably can even understand logically, I let go and now I don't know and there's a certain fear there. So we can, I think first of all, um, practice with it and, and see it clearly. You know, there are times when I've had retreats of 10 or 14 days where I've just been afraid the whole time and, and hang out with that. And something, there's... Um, and so part of it, I think, is finding the right... Um, there are a few things. Sometimes we, when we look at the fear... It's helpful, we, we need in a certain way to be somewhat balanced. And so it's skillful, I think, to not always just say, open, I'll open up, fear, take me away, I'm here, 
this is the practice. Sometimes it's actually skillful to go in a different direction and to find the balance because I think we can only really work skillfully with fear when we're somewhat balanced. And so, and so if there are certain things which open you up to that fear, I wouldn't suggest always going there. You know, that, that's, that's one point. And there, there, are, there are part of, you know, so part of it might be to, there are other practices that sort of strengthen, that sort of help to strengthen other qualities in ourselves. So, uh, for example, metta, loving kindness practice, could be very, very skillful when, you're, when there's a certain amount of fear. In fact, some of you may know that um, the reason for um, giving loving kindness originally from the Buddha was to, as an antidote to fear. And so um, practices that more accentuate the positive, that bring you into joy and more, more love, they, in a way, they strengthen ourselves, they give us more balance, and at certain times we can work with the fear. You know, so, so just to know that you don't have to do it, that you can, you can to some extent, go at your own pace, don't have to force it. Don't have to say, oh, I need to do it. I'm a good Dharma student. I should just be with fear all the time. It's not necessary, really. And the key, I think, is having some, some balance, then having the, the antidotes. And then uh, as we, but you can also look at it in small, sort of small pieces. You can say, okay, let me just taste it a little bit now. And because and, the key is to really keep noticing it and see into it. And there's some, as we look more, we get insight into the nature of fear. That really is helpful. And over time, we stop, I think we stop, as we get more familiar, there's a way in which we, are, we become not quite as fearful of fear, which is a key moment. It's like mountain climbers have fear, right? They just not, are not paralyzed by fear. So they can kind of learn to be with it. So looking for looking into the nature of fear as in those times when you feel balanced is, is key because there's a certain way we can see through fear enough for it to be more familiar. And my own personal experience is that when I've sometimes been willing to face fear, it, um, it sometimes um, goes away. That the, that the fear of fear is almost more powerful than the fear itself. So I hope those, those are a few pieces, but the, I think the key thing is just to know that it's normal, know that it's um, part of our practice and that you don't have to push it and that you can just do that which cultivates balance. And then at certain moments you can retreat or, or times maybe to go into it, to know that it's kind of waiting. I could tell you a personal story, but I think we don't have time. <laughs> But it's, I'd be happy to talk more um, afterwards if, if that felt in any way incomplete or wasn't quite connecting. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.